Welcome back to Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past. This is Michael Delaware. I am your host. And today I'm going to explore the year 1917 in the city of Battle Creek. And the story I'm going to tell you is about the unsolved murder of an Italian man named Giuseppe Aiello. It was a brutal murder that happened right here in Battle Creek, and the killer was never brought to justice. So it's a forgotten true crime story from the annals of Southwest Michigan history. So come along and join me. Now, I first came across this story about a year ago when I was doing a video on the history of Mount Olivet Cemetery. That's a cemetery that is right across from Oak Hill Cemetery here in Battle Creek, Michigan. And it is a Catholic cemetery managed by the local Catholic diocese. And it was just by chance that I filmed the headstone of a grave that was marked Joseph Aiello. And I did a little researching into his story and discovered that he was murdered. And the murder had occurred just down the street from where he was buried. At the time, my skills on researching weren't as they are today after I've done maybe a hundred more videos of that sort. And I've learned a lot more on researching old historical records. And so I decided to revisit this story because... I'm putting together some material, perhaps for a future book, on some of the true crime incidents that happened in the early part of the 20th century, as well as the 1800s. And I thought I would revisit this story and see if I could really apply some of the skills that I learned to uncover the full story. And boy, did it kind of unfold on me. And it went in directions that I never anticipated. And it's more than just the story of an awful murder. It's the story of the time of 1917. And it's a very interesting look into the past. The year 1917 in Battle Creek was a crucible period in the long history of the city, Woodrow Wilson had just signed a declaration of war passed by Congress in April of that year. The U.S. was mobilizing for a war like no other before in the history of the country, preparing to send troops over to Europe. And as part of these efforts, the federal government had just made a formal announcement in June to establish a military base west of Battle Creek on the site of the old Harmonia village. The military base would become Camp Custer, and construction was in full swing by midsummer. Thousands of new specialty contractors and general laborers had descended on the city. By August, the first military training had begun at the camp, although construction was still ongoing, and it was bringing in recruits from all over the Midwest. On June 13th, the War Department had declared Battle Creek to be in the Bard Zone, which made it necessary for all enemy aliens to register and it placed restrictions on their movements. Enemy aliens during World War I was a term used to describe any citizen of states legally at war with the British Empire or the U.S. Those included immigrants from the German Empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the Ottoman Empire, and Bulgaria. With Battle Creek being designated as a barred zone, the police and newly established military personnel in Battle Creek were on high alert for foreigners arriving in the city. They were also suspicious of any foreigner from any of these countries that were already here. Such was the social climate in late September, 
as the leaves began to show their subtle hues in expectation of cooler weather. Giuseppe Aiello was born in Sicily near Terracini, a son of Antonio Aiello and Caterina Parisi. He immigrated to the U.S. with his wife Maria, who would later go by Mary, and their infant daughter Catherine in 1909. They settled in Battle Creek in a growing Italian neighborhood that existed in the area around Oak Hill Cemetery during that time period. He and Mary would have three more children in their new home by 1914. His job was that of a stoker at the Battle Creek gas plant, which meant he shoveled coal into furnaces there. By all accounts from his neighbors and friends, he was regarded as a good and honest family man. He pronounced his name Aelo, as opposed to E-Yellow. Following his arrival, he changed his name to Joseph Ellen for convenience. The practice of changing names to Americanize them was a common practice in the early part of the century for immigrants. A lot of that was in part of their efforts to assimilate into their new country. It was also seen to be easier to obtain employment and also process legal paperwork. Sometimes names were changed during the immigration process to Americanize them. Other times it was changed to make it easier for people they encountered in the new country who were not familiar with the nuances of their language. Joseph Ellen became how he was known locally, and this name is listed in the Battle Creek Directory of 1916. Different news articles at the time referred to Joseph as Ellen and others as E-L, which was spelled E-I-L-L. And only one article in the events of 1917 mentioned his original spelling of Aiello, which was A-I-E-L-L-O. These many variations made it a bit tedious to track down the details of this story. Additionally, he was also known among his friends and co-workers as Joe or Joseph. And so in this story, I have chosen to use Joseph or Joseph Ellen to describe him in the rest of the events that follow. In 1917, on Friday afternoon, September 28th, he left work at 4 p.m., as usual, and never made it home. Joe's wife had the police out looking for him because it was very unusual for him to not come home at night after work. A co-worker that had been seen with him told police that Joseph had suddenly parted ways with him on the route home, saying that he had to go see a man. He would later state that he thought Joe had a bottle of liquor and that he did not want to share it with him. Joseph Allen was never seen alive again by his family or friends. His mutilated body was discovered the next morning on the bank of the mill pond, not far from his house, by a neighbor. Suspects were named, and one was held and interrogated over a week following Joseph's death. Ultimately, the murder was never solved. So what happened here? Let's unpack this gruesome story. When the incident happened, there were two Battle Creek newspapers that covered the story, which began on September 29, 1917. One was uh, by the Battle Creek Daily Journal, and the other, the Evening News. Both included some interesting details that the other did not so combined with this and later articles, we can piece together the story. On the morning of September 29th, Joseph's body was found brutally mutilated in some underbrush on the banks of the mill pond at just before 8 o'clock a.m. in the morning. 
His body was discovered by Mrs. Edith McConnell, who lived on South Avenue, when she went out into her garden in the rear of her home. Looking toward the bridge, she noticed the body, thinking it was a drunken man. She went down to see who it was. On current maps of Battle Creek, this house still exists. However, the roads have been changed on some of the cross streets. Also, the bridge that is mentioned was a railroad or interurban bridge and no longer is there. However, it does show on the 1916 map of the area. The mill pond in those days was much larger than it is today, and this was right across the street from the house. Mrs. McConnell discovered Joseph's body somewhere near the corner of present-day South Avenue and Dickman Road when compared with these two maps. When she approached within a few feet of where he was lying, she saw that the man was dead and immediately telephoned the police. The police arrived on the scene and notified the coroner. When the coroner examined the body, it was found that the victim's throat had been cut and the head practically severed from the body. Three holes were cut through the skull, evidently by a hatchet, or it was also speculated to have possibly been a cheese knife. The face and torso were also terribly slashed and bruised. The body was lying on its back, with the left arm lying across the chest and the right arm at its side, indicating that the body had been carefully laid where it was found. The head, however, was partly embedded in the earth, showing several blows which cut into his skull. These were determined to have occurred after the body had been placed on the ground. A trail of blood was traced to the railroad tracks where it was lost. There was also no drag marks to the spot, which made the investigators conclude that it was carried, requiring the participation of more than one perpetrator. When they retraced Joseph's movements the prior day, they found that he had gone to work as usual and quit work at 4 o'clock and started home. There are two different accounts in the papers on whom he walked home with. One said it was his brother-in-law, Tony Tobin, who lived with him at the same house and also worked at the gas plant. They lived together on West Hall Street, which is the location of present-day Dickman Road. In those days, it was a single-lane residential street, and their house was right around the corner from where he was found. When they'd gotten within a block of the house, Joseph suddenly stated to Tony that he was going back to see a friend. That was the last time Tony saw him, when he turned the corner onto South Avenue and started towards town. The other newspaper account indicated that he walked home with another Italian co-worker who lived a few blocks away on Main Street, and his name was Philip Runyon. It appears that Mr. Runyon was indeed the person based on all later articles in the newspapers. Tony Tobin is never mentioned again in later articles, so it appears the original reporter covering the story mixed up the names. When Joseph never came home that evening, Mary Ellen had called the police and asked them to search for him that Friday evening. But this was to no avail. When Mary heard the news that he was found on Saturday morning, she was quite grief-stricken, but willingly answered questions by the police detectives. Her interview was done through an interpreter, as she did not speak any English. She stated that during the past week, her husband had been acting in a peculiar manner, as if he had something on his mind that was causing him to worry. She had asked him what the trouble was, but he refused to tell her, saying, You needn't worry. I can take care of myself. Now here's where the Battle Creek Moon Journal introduces an interesting detail of the time period. They state that from her story, 
the police were inclined to believe that the murder was committed by Black Hand members. Although Mary declared that her husband had never received any threats to her knowledge. What was the Black Hand? This was something that was known about in the international news at the time, but is lost to many of us today. The Black Hand was a secret Serbian society of the early 20th century that used terrorist methods to promote the liberation of Serbs outside Serbia. This same group was instrumental in planning the assassination of Austrian Archduke Franz Ferdinand in 1914, which precipitated the outbreak of World War I. The society had been formed in 1911 by Colonel Dragutin Dramitria Beck, and its members were primarily army officers along with some government officials. They operated from Belgrade, Serbia, and conducted propaganda campaigns, organized armed bands in Macedonia, and established a network of revolutionary cells throughout Bosnia. Within Serbia, the Black Hand dominated the army and wielded tremendous influence over the government by terrorizing officials, and it became so powerful that its authority challenged the government. In order to eliminate this rival, Prince Alexander, commander-in-chief of the expatriate Serbian army, brought the leaders of the Black Hand to trial on dubious charges in 1917. Dmitrievek and two others were executed, and more than 200 were imprisoned. All of this was being played out in the international newspapers at the time, as the discovery of Joseph Ellen's brutally murdered body was found. The police were seeing that Joseph was Italian, and became suspicious that this was some sort of professional execution. When Mary mentioned the way her husband was behaving in the week prior to his death, they may have concluded that some kind of trouble had followed Joseph from Europe to Battle Creek that he'd not told his wife about. Suspicions began to per the idea that he had a hidden connection with the Black Hand, as who else would kill someone so brutally? At least that's what they were thinking. It's important to remember the context of the time when considering this and trying to understand how the police may have suspected this. The city was in the midst of a huge influx of people in the area, and the federal government was building a military base nearby. With the discovery of Joseph Ellen's body, brutally axe-murdered during the height of this activity, it's easy to see how the police might be suspicious of this being some form of foreign espionage. Robbery was also thought to have been a motive, but it was known that Joseph did not have any money on his person the day before his disappearance. The police concluded, based on the fact that his body was so mutilated, that the murder was done by someone who had a long-standing grudge against him. However, initially his family and neighbors could not point out any person who might have had such a difference with Joseph. The coroner had determined that he'd been dead at least 10 hours before his body was found. It was thought that he'd been murdered in some house in that area, in that section of the city, and had been carried to the spot where he was found in the cover of night. No disturbances of any sort had been reported in the vicinity, however, and for that reason, the police thought that the murder had been committed in the business district of downtown, as this was the direction Joseph was reported as last being seen heading. 
As a result, the police searched every house in the southeastern part of the city that they suspected that morning, looking for the murder scene, and nothing was found. They had hoped to find the hatchet or axe or cheese knife as an important clue to finding the murderers, but they uncovered nothing. They also had given consideration that the weapon might be lying somewhere in the bottom of the mill pond, where it was probably thrown following the hacking of the victim. In 1917, they really did not have the resources or a system in which to drag the mill pond in hopes of finding the weapon, as you might see today in a police investigation. Philip Runyon claimed that when he walked with Joseph towards his home from the gas plant at 4 o'clock, that they separated at the mill pond going different ways. Runyon said that he returned to his room where he lived over on Main Street. He claimed he did not know of Joseph Ellen's disappearance until later that evening when Mary approached him worried over her husband's failure to come home and she had started the police out to look for him. The Evening News also reported that when the discovery of the body by Edith McConnell that morning, the constable and two detectives responded to the scene. They had determined that the man had been killed with a heavy axe or hunting hatchet. The assailant commenced to chopping the man in the chest, working up around the neck where his head was almost severed. The same newspaper also reported that the three cuts to his skull, which was consistent with the Battle Creek Journal, they also noted that the grass and weeds around the head were not matted, nor were there any signs of a scuffle at the scene. And from this, the police had made the conclusion that the body had been carried there and left by at least two individuals. Allen was found with a bottle of liquor in his pocket. When the police had interviewed Philip Runyon, he had indicated that he thought Allen had wanted to make a drink and did not want to share it, which was why he separated from him at the mill pond. On Saturday morning, when Runyon heard of the murder, he was working at the gas plant where he was also employed as a stoker. He was reported by his co-workers to have put on a different set of clothes than the ones he had worn to work and then left. The police were notified by the officials at the gas plant who thought his behavior was a bit peculiar, and Runyon was taken into custody. The Marshall Evening News also carried the story on September 29th. They also reported inconsistencies with the other two papers. The main detail was that they described the weapon was a hatchet and stated that it was found covered in blood lying next to the victim, which was not reported in any of the Battle Creek newspapers. According to all other reports, no weapon was ever found. The Chronicle also described that the body had been cut into pieces, which is inconsistent with the other two newspapers. The Chronicle did mention that the police suspected the black hand and that Runyon had been taken into custody, but he had remained silent. Incidentally, the Detroit Free Press also carried a short article entitled Food City Murder Still a Mystery on September 30th, but offered no new details. Four days later, on October 2nd, the Battle Creek Journal carried a story with a headline that reads, Expect Suspect Will Confess. The article states police believe Philip Runyon will tell what is wanted concerning murder. It also described how the Italian suspect spent the morning pacing up and down the cell with his head in his hands and stopping only periodically to engage in pounding on the bars. He was also described as striking the iron bars with his head and his hands. It states, once the police 
attempted to extract a confession, but the Italian would only scream and beat the cell doors with his fist. The journal article also revealed that his neighbors had claimed that Runyon had washed his clothes early Saturday morning, presumably before he had gone to work, and when he was arrested, his shirt was stained in different places. The detectives and the constable would not confirm the stains were of blood, but the shirt was sent to experts to determine what they were. The journal also closes the story with the supposition of the police is that Runyon was present when Ellen was murdered and also that he helped carry the body where it was found Saturday morning. Plans are being made to give Runyon a stiff third degree this evening. The story continued the next day in the journal with the headline which read, No New Clues in Ellen Case. The article explained that Runyon failed to confess and that they suspected he knew how the murder was committed. The police were continuing to hold him in custody and Runyon was carrying on quite wildly, beating the bars with his hands in rage and in anguish. The story also reveals that the police received information about the existence of another man who formerly resided in Battle Creek who knew Joseph Allen well and lived near him and he'd been in the city on Friday. The man had since disappeared and the detectives believed that the murder was committed by these two men and the police were trying to track down the other suspect. The journal article concludes with the statement, all of the men are but recently removed from Italy or Sicily and do not understand English well. That statement alone, in retrospect, would lead one to conclude that there was a breakdown in the communication between the detectives and Runyon. The veracity of the news story and its conclusions about Runyon at that point is a bit questionable. As the story progressed forward, this became even more apparent. The Marshall Evening Chronicle carried the story on October 3rd and repeated much of the same information in the journal. Essentially, they reported that Runyon was in custody and the police were expecting him to confess any time because he'd been screaming at them through the bars. The Evening News carried the story in headlines on October 3rd, reading, Shirt in murder case shows no bloodstains. The article confirmed that the report received from analysis of Runyon's shirt was inconclusive for bloodstains. They also mentioned that the police were beginning to conclude that he may not be guilty. The Evening News article also was the only one that mentioned Ellen's original name being Aelo and states he changed it to Ellen for convenience. At some point when reading these three articles about the murder, it's easy to stand back and wonder what was going on with the police department. Why why was this investigation taking so long? Why wasn't more time being spent on finding an interpreter to interview Runyon? A whole host of other questions might come to mind. However, an article in the Evening News dated October 2nd, 1917, offers a lot of clarity with regards to the state of the police department in Battle Creek at this time. The headline reads, Arrest in September beats all other records. The article goes on to explain that in August, the previous month, there had been 36 arrests. But the current month of September saw 326 arrests in the city. That is over a 900% increase. What changed, you might ask? 
Well, Camp Custer is what changed. Increasing crime in the city was said to be attributable to the erection of Camp Custer with all the workers arriving in the town. Among the wave of new workers was another group in the mix who they described as floaters, men who would work for a few days and loaf many more days in the city. Despite the efforts of those in charge of the construction trying to hire productive workers, there were many undesirables also arriving on the scene, as well as drifting into town and creating trouble. The police were extremely busy in September with arrests for drunkenness and disorderly conduct mostly. This new shift must have overwhelmed the police department and created a lot of distractions as well as very tired officers. The article mentions that there were prisoners of every class from drunks to those suspected of murder locked up in the city jail. One can only imagine the experience for Philip Runyon during this time as well. He does not speak English. No one else seems to understand his pleadings. He's surrounded by drunks and is undergoing intense interrogations where no one seems to understand what he's saying. As a note, I searched to see if there were any other murders that September and did not discover that there were any others in Battle Creek. So their reference to people being locked up for murder was Philip Runyon. An interesting story on September 10th about an incident in Port Huron, however, mentions an Italian man being arrested for attempted murder and he was being deported on possible murder charges in Italy. The police investigating thought he was a member of the Black hand as well. So you kind of can draw the connection of the mindset of police officers probably across the entire state and maybe across the nation at that time that any really bizarre, unusual crime might be the black hand, you know. So on October 5th, the Joseph Ellen murder story unfolds even more in the evening news. The headline reads, Proof Shows Border to be murder suspect. The article described that the coroner's inquest was eventually held on the Ellen murder. And the jury at this inquest came to the conclusion that Ellen came to his death at the hands of an assassin or assassins, but that Runyon, the last man seen with Ellen, who was being held by the police, was not guilty for the crime. Ellen's widow, Mary, took the stand and testified that the only motive that she knew for the crime was a boarder who once resided in the home by the name of Tony Castobello, who had made advances towards her, which she had became indignant about, and she'd ordered him out of the house. In this same hearing, Runyon was placed on the stand and declared innocent when a man who roomed with him testified that Runyon was in bed asleep when the murders took place. Runyon, the poor man, did not understand the proceedings and wept violently when he was on the stand and when the coroner's jury left the room at the end of the inquiry. It was only when an interpreter talked to him to explain what had happened that he began to calm down and was overcome with thankfulness. The article explained again that neither Runyon nor any of the witnesses at the hearing could speak English and that the inquest progressed slowly for the interpreter had difficulty keeping the Italians on the stand from making long speeches. Apparently, the courtroom was full of Italians from the same neighborhood and several testified willingly. So this coroner's inquiry went on for several hours. After this final article on the coroner's inquest, there was no further mention of what happened next. 
Tony Costabello was named as the lead suspect and alluded to have been in the wind in the earlier articles on this story. A search of his name on national newspapers and other archival databases comes up with no information on a man by this name. Likewise, there was no other stories where he was mentioned in the Battle Creek or Marshall newspapers following this date. Was he a real person? Was his name an alias? The murder of Joseph Allen was never solved, and no suspects were ever prosecuted for this brutal murder. A genealogist on findagrave.com indicated that Philip Runyon died in 1945 in a mental institution. Perhaps the stress from this period in life was too much for him in the years that followed. Joseph left behind a wife and four children. He's buried at Mount Olivet Cemetery across from Oak Hill Cemetery on South Avenue in Battle Creek, just about two blocks from where he was murdered. Mary moved to Detroit with the children following the death of her husband as she had a lot of family living there. She would remarry two more times, her second marriage ending in divorce, and her third husband passed away in 1947. She lived to the age of 78 and died in Detroit in 1969. She's buried at Mount Olivet Cemetery in Detroit. Catherine, the oldest daughter who was born in Italy, was a young girl of 15 and was set to be married in 1925. Sadly, she died of influenza prior to her wedding. She's buried near her mother in Detroit. The three other children all lived to adulthood, and the last one died in 1989. They're all buried in cemeteries in Michigan. So there's many questions that are left unanswered with the murder of Joseph Allen. Did he encounter someone who had a grudge with him from the past that suddenly arrived in town? What was troubling him that he did not tell his wife about? Was someone threatening him? Did he go to see someone that had summoned him? What would be the motive for killing a man who has a wife and four children who really did not have a lot of money? Was there really something after all to this black hand connection that the police suspected? Or was that just the overactive imagination of detectives hoping for something that wasn't there? Did the police really have time to investigate the possibility of other suspects from his work or neighborhood? Or did they just zero in on Runyon and perhaps search for Castabello and not look for any other possibilities? Or could it have been something other than murder? After all, the body was found below a railroad bridge. Is it possible that he had been walking on the train tracks and been hit by a train and then tossed which mutilated his body? Could his injuries not have been from axe wounds, but some kind of strange impact lacerations from a cow catcher on a locomotive? Or was that possibility never really ever explored? It would be interesting to read the police notes on this case, if they still exist. I actually contacted the Battle Creek Police Department to see if they had any archival records from this period, and they do not have anything that goes that far back. But it does leave a very peculiar question of who murdered Joseph Allen. And it's also just kind of an interesting time period in 1917 because the city of Battle Creek was going through this tremendous transition with the establishment of Camp Custer. And all of these troops were arriving and they were, of course, coming into town and on their days off and their, uh, when they were not on duty at the fort. And so you had this huge influx of people coming into town. There were, there's a lot of records of uh, in 1917 to early 1918 of the troops spending a lot of time in the cities at church functions and things like that. Plus you had all of the workers that were in town until about December or early January working on and building and expanding the fort. So you have this entire new group of people that have moved into the Battle Creek area 
area and it swelled the population of the city just from that activity alone. Then the whole context of war in the newspaper, everybody's on edge. Everyone's in anticipation of the troops moving out to go to Europe. And this whole thing is building. So, And you have all of these reports coming from Europe and so forth. So it was really kind of a really strange period of time in the country at that time period. And it was a strange period of time in the city of Battle Creek in 1917. And then they have this bizarre axe murder of Joseph Ellen that was probably very shocking and graphic for the police to come across and experience. And they were doing their best to try to solve it, but it was never solved. The murderer was never ultimately caught. So it's a sad story, but it does capture a bit of a vignette about the history of Battle Creek. So that's going to conclude today's episode on the story of the murder of Giuseppe Alilo, or better known in his time by people in the city as Joseph Allen. So let me know what you think about the story and the murder of Joseph Allen. You can always reach out to me at michaeldelaware.com and send me a message through the contact form on there. There are a few other true crime stories from that period of Battle Creek, Michigan, and there's a few other ones that I've come across in other areas of the state in the southwest Michigan area that I intend to dig into a little bit more and maybe make more uh, stories on that to perhaps put a collection together in a book at some point. But until next time, when we take another journey into a chapter of yesterday and explore yet another fascinating story from Southwest Michigan's past, thank you for listening.